Wait, are you recording yet? All right, okay. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we are going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm doing greatly okay. Okay. We should start by saying who we are and why anybody should listen to us in the first place. I mean, you don't have to. This is entirely voluntary. But uh, let's say uh, who we are and why we've set up the podcast. Uh, my name is Callum and I am a trainee in infectious diseases and medical microbiology in Edinburgh. Yeah, and I'm Jamie and I'm an infectious disease and clinical pharmacology trainee also in Edinburgh. And why have we set up this podcast? You asked me to. Yes. Uh, well, I think that we've realized that there's a bit of a hole, let's say, in infectious disease education, sort of round about the podcasting. I certainly really just listened only to the podcast, which is just shut down. And when it comes to training in the UK in general, and for the FRC Path Part 1 combined infection clinical exam in particular, there's not a huge amount of resources just yet. And it would be kind of nice to try and make some small contribution to that and also to improve the infectious disease management of patients by, you know, everyone in general from, you know, infectious disease trainees all the way down to FYs and medical students and advanced nurse practitioners and people like that too. So would you say this is a podcast aimed at uh, medical practitioners uh, managing patients with infections? And our yeah. secondary aim is really to, to help people prepare for their exams. Both, you know, non-infection exams like the, you know, the MRCP and the MRCS, but also uh, the infection exams when it comes to that too. Yeah. Uh, and despite that, we're aware that listeners may not fit into those categories. So as we go along, we'll try our best to explain things to a degree. Okay. So uh, what's the first topic? Well, today... Uh, we're going to talk about Staphylococcus aureus. Um, mm. So we're talking about this. Well, we're talking about this because it is a very important and pretty common infection, no matter where you practice. Um, and their outline uh, for the podcast is going to be uh, what they are, what they do, how they're classified, and how to kill them. Sure. Okay, I'll start with uh, what they are. So Staphylococcus aureus is a breed of bacteria called gram-positive cocci. Um, with the way that people normally classify bacteria in the lab is by the shape of the cell and whether or not the bacteria will take on something called the gram stain. The gram stain, the specifics of conducting it, you don't really need to know until you're uh, sitting your uh, infection exams. But uh, the fact is that if you apply gram stain to a bacteria, it will either retain it in which case it's got a cell wall that's thick uh, in peptidoglycan, or it will wash off, in which case that would be termed gram-negative. So Staph aureus has a thick wall of peptidoglycan, so it retains gram stain, and so it is gram-positive. Cocci refers to the circular shape of the cell. Yeah, so staphylococci literally means like a bun- bunch of grapes, and that's what it looks like down the microscope, sort of a group of purple uh, grapes, which you can find if you uh, obviously we can't show you an image on the podcast, but uh, if you Google Staphylococcus aureus gram stain, you'll see a nice picture. 
Aureus, that just means gold. So it's to do with the color it has when it grows on blood acre way that we grow it in the lab. Mm. Yeah. One more thing to comment on the on the Staphylococci, that, that bunch of grapes. So there are other gram-positive cocci. There's, there's lots of other different kinds of gram-positive cocci, but functionally, until you start training in infectious disease and microbiology, you only really need to think about staphylococci and streptococci. There's other weird ones, which we might cover in the future, but really it's just staph and strep. Usually it will be reported as gram-positive cocci in clusters or gram-positive cocci in chains, and that's to give you a sort of a steer as to which of these two great species of gram positive cocci you're dealing with yeah it's not it's not 100% reliable and mm. we're getting better and better at other tests that can give you the result quickly and the yeah. other big differentiator is so you know the, i guess the context is you've got a blood culture bottle it's flag positive you put a bit of blood under the microscope and you do the gram stain that's your first test later on you've you've put that blood out onto some agar and it's grown on the plate hopefully and then you got an organism sort of what we call a colony um, or a colony forming unit is a CFU you might come across. Mm. Um, and you take that and you can do some tests. And one of the tests we might do is something called a catalase test, um, which is basically will it break down hydrogen peroxide into uh, water and oxygen and you'll see bubbling. So um, if something is uh, catalase positive and it's a gram positive coccus, uh, it's probably going to be a staphylococcus. And if it's a catalase negative, it's probably a streptococcus. So it's another way of differentiating those two big groups, which is what you want to do quickly. Mm. Yeah. So grampus of cocci in clusters, that is catalase uh, positive, that is a staphylococcus and grampus of cocci that's in chains or in pairs, which is catalase negative, mm. that's streptococcus. But you've only identified it to the genus level at this point. We need to make a big distinction now is it staph aureus, which is big and mean and dangerous and what this whole episode is about? Or is it a coagulase negative staph, which are much more indolent? And the clues in the name, the test that we use to apply that is coagulase. So staph aureus is coagulase positive. And that means that it's got a coagulating factor that we can test for. It's an agglutination test. Uh, essentially, you kind of drop a, get a sample of the uh, colony that you've grown and you mix it with this kind of milky substance on a bit of paper. And if you see it kind of separate out a bit like how milk can separate out when it goes old, then that would be a positive test. And then you've identified it as a gram positive cocci in clusters that's coagulase positive, that's staph aureus. And if that doesn't happen, then you would identify it as a coagulase negative staphylococci and largely discount it. You know, particularly in blood cultures, you would usually consider it to be a skin contaminant. Yep. And uh, as with most things, there's caveats to, to both those. So sometimes there's coagulase positive staff, which aren't staph aureus. And uh, sometimes mm. coagulase negative staff can be significant. For example, if the patient's got, you know, a line and um, prosthetic material in their bloodstream. Uh, but by and large, those truths mm. hold. When we look at staphylococcus aureus in the laboratory, it's one of those uh, things, you know, when you get a sample in and you're doing investigations, you, you, a lot of the bacteria, um, you know, you're not interested in growing. Staph aureus is always something that we want to find because it's fairly universally going to be pathogenic when you're getting it in a clinical sample. Um, so we're very good at finding it and very good at growing it in the laboratory. 
Not that you need a lot of help, actually, because Staph aureus is pretty good at growing on just about anything you, you stick it on. In fact, a lot of the specialised agars that we use for growing other stuff has to contain certain inhibitors so that you wouldn't grow Staph aureus on it, you know? We do all these laboratory tests that you might come across in textbooks. Um, ultimately, most of the time now, the answer is you put it in something called a moldy tof, which we won't go into details about. Um, but it's a fascinating piece of machine where you uh, pop it on a plate, you put it in the machine and... Uh, you get a answer in five minutes and it's amazing. So maybe we should talk about that in the future. I think we should. I think we should have a, an episode about microbiology diagnostics as they are currently done, yeah. uh, but uh, let's not uh, talk about it now. So, Jane McRae, where is Staphylococcus aureus found? Well, Callum, much. Uh, very commonly, you'll find it on the skin. Uh, and so the this is what staff does normally you might think where do i get it from if this thing is so mean and nasty why do i have it on me all the time well most of the time it's doing you good it's kind of preventing other meaner nastier bacteria from colonizing your skin you in fact release a bunch of fatty acids onto the skin which are digested by your skin commensals which are almost all staff and streps and uh, a lot of the time that includes staph aureus the other part of your body where it'll be found uh, commonly is the upper respiratory tract. About a quarter of people are colonized with staphylococcus. The GI tract uh, and the mouth also. And the kind of received wisdom is that that you are transiently colonized with staph aureus, but there's more and more evidence actually that you can be persistently colonized with staph. And when they do sampling of uh, you know, normal individuals, about a fifth of them have uh, staph aureus in their GI tract, any upper GI tract at any one time. Not usually, but sometimes the vaginal tract can be colonized with staph aureus too. Those are the main areas that uh, that we find it on the on the body. And so, like I say, it's normally doing its what you would consider to be its job of protecting you from other more nasty invading pathogens, uh, but occasionally it gets out of control. Uh, so that brings us on to the next section, which is what they do. So, Callum, uh, we've got a, a, a mnemonic for the kinds of infections that Staph aureus causes when it gets out of control. Yeah, uh, the mnemonic is soft pains. Um, I don't think Jamie and I really like this because it doesn't prioritize the infections or group them in any way. Um, if you're interested, then it stands for S is skin soft tissue infections, things like cellulitis, boils, uh, o is osteomyelitis infection of the bone. F is food poisonings. T stands for toxic shock syndrome. P is for pneumonia. A is acute endocr- infective endocarditis. I is infective arthritis. N is necrotizing fasciitis or necrotizing skin soft tissue infection. And S is sepsis. Another way to break this down is to sort of make it a bit simpler. There's four main things to think about with Staphylococcus aureus. First would be skin, uh, soft tissue, bone and joint infections. Uh, so we usually sort of lump these together because anatomically they're very related. Uh, second would be gastrointestinal, so sort of the food, food poisoning side of things. Uh, uh, third would be in the chest, so whether that's pneumonia or in the heart uh, with uh, infective endocarditis. And then lastly would be uh, toxin-mediated problems, so toxic shock syndrome, the necrotizing skin soft tissue infection. You know, as far as no go, it's fine. Um, and if 
you learn it in order to learn the kinds of infections where you have to worry about staph aureus. I don't think you've like wasted your time particularly, but you're right to say stuff has been shoehorned in. Why is infective arthritis not the A, you know, the arthritis and acute endocarditis is not infective endocarditis, making it the I? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And also the last one being S for sepsis. Well, all bacteria cause sepsis. We could just change it. We've 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 fixed it. Okay, so A actually sounds for arthritis. And then I is infective endocarditis, yeah. Great. Okay. So if nothing else, we've just improved the mnemonic. Like I say, I, d- I just think of it as infect soft tissue, hard tissue, the chest, which is the lung of the heart until specified otherwise. And uh, toxin stuff is GI and, and toxic shock syndrome, which we'll, we'll talk about um, uh, in a moment because we're about to talk about virulence factors. Um, and in terms of the kind of people who are prone to staph aureus infection, because staph aureus can cause all of this stuff, but it sort of needs a reason to get out of hand. Like you don't normally get acute staph aureus infection and you can sort of divide the risk factors really into, into three main things. One is a breakdown in the barrier. So your, your skin is, is kind of cut or there's a trauma, you're an injected drug user and you're you know, constantly damaging your, your skin barrier and introducing infection. And also you've, you may not have the best injection technique. The second is if you are immunocompromised. And so that's if, you're, you know, if you've got chemotherapy or you've got some sort of hematological malignancy of some description, but also if you've got chronic kidney disease, you're, you're kind of mildly immunocompromised. If you are on a biologic medicine, you're mildly immunocompromised. If you're type one or type two diabetic, all of these have kind of knock-on effects and make you more prone to infection with staph aureus. And diabetes, obviously, the having more sugary tissue as a result of loose diabetic control can also predispose uh, to colonization and subsequently infection. And then the last risk factor would be the introduction of prosthetic material into previously sterile environments. So the classic cause of, of say, having staph aureus in your blood is that it's got introduced uh, in the context of getting an IV cannulae put in, and then it colonizes the plastic and then starts kind of, it's almost like you've, you've uh, created a little home for it residing within uh, the bloodstream. Uh, but also prosthetic joints, mechanical heart valves, all of these things are prone to being colonized with uh, staph aureus and that can then go on to cause, you know, an arthritis or an endocarditis. These are all common. And I think it's cumulative risk factors as well. So imagine the patient who's an inpatient who's on chemotherapy for malignancy and they're immune compromised from that. Uh, and then you put a cannula in to, to give them or a line to give them the chemotherapy. Well, you've broken their skin barrier because you've got something going through the skin into the vein. Uh, and then you've got prosthetic material there. So you kind of got three different hits uh, mm-hmm. to, to the risk factors. Yeah, it's, it's easy to accumulate them, particularly in the inpatient population. So why is Staph aureus so good at what it's doing? Let's talk about its virulence factors. Callum? So virulence factors, um, these are chemicals, enzymes, toxins, things that the bacteria produces, um, which has an effect on our bodies. It's quite a broad term. It's just things that make them better mm-hmm. at uh, causing disease. 
some toxins that all strains of staph virus will have some um are specific genes that they pick up in uh, one way or the other and you can test for them to see if that specific strain that the patient's got has got it that toxin yeah i guess those are the ones that are important clinically aren't they so let, let's yep. talk about pvl scaldedsin enterotoxins and tsst1 let's do that toxic shock syndrome toxin one which i have to say i love the name <laughs> of this toxin it's just toxic shock syndrome toxin you know great job done everybody knows exactly what it is it makes sense this unsurprisingly causes toxic shock syndrome um which essentially you can get you know, a relatively small uh, or non-severe infection with Staph aureus, but become incredibly unwell. There's a sort of scoring criteria to see if someone has a toxic shock syndrome, essentially sort of rash and organ dysfunction, like renal impairment, liver impairment, low blood pressure. And uh, the classic example would be retained tampon or sanitary product, which has been left in for too long. And if your vagina is colonized with Staphylococcus aureus, they can grow uh, in an environment and not necessarily cause a severe infection at that site, but then spread, producing toxin, making you really unwell. Um, So it's always something to remember if you've got a really sick patient and potentially an ICU unconscious, you you need to think about that as a potential source. Yeah, so the next one would be maybe enterotoxins, and I'll I'll lump these together with with toxic shock syndrome toxin because there's they're both something called super antigens, and super antigens are things which hit T cells, uh, and they'll activate those T cells at the maximal level. Toxic shock syndrome, they get toxic shock syndrome. Enterotoxins. Uh, the staph aureus is ingested and it doesn't really leave the GI tract, but what happens is that the enterotoxin gets released and causes this massive response. And so the patient ends up with food poisoning and uh, hopefully expels the staph aureus and thus solving uh, the problem. So it can be sometimes be self-limiting and sometimes not. Moving on, so exfoliative toxin. Uh, another pretty well-named toxin, I think. Um, so it causes exfoliation, so sort of essentially removal of your skin. Um, and the clinical syndrome is called scalded skin syndrome. And this is predominantly a condition seen in children. Uh, a classic case being a child who's had a small you know, cut or break in the skin, so their barriers disrupted, and they have a staphylococcus aureus that gets into that site. And often doesn't necessarily have a, a sort of signs of infection at that point. Uh, there may be mild signs of infection, but it doesn't seem to be very severe. But what you end up with is this quite generalized rash with peeling skin and the child becomes quite unwell. Um, and again, similar to the, the other two that we talked about, it's not so much that the bacteria is invading and causing a severe infection, like we'll talk about in some of the other cases, but more that the toxin is being spread and that's causing a, a sort of too much of response from your immune system. And then the last one is uh, PVL or Pantone Valentin Leucocidin. So this is a toxin which the way that it works is that it kills um, uh, white blood cells and that uh, gives the toxin possessing or the PVL possessing uh, Staph aureus uh, an edge when it comes to invading uh, the skin and, and kind of getting around the natural barriers uh, of the skin. So the uh, classic story with PVL producing staph is the patient will present with recurrent skin abscesses. They'll get them time and time again. 
they'll still be responsive to you know flu clocks. It's not necessarily an MRSA. And if they're just causing skin abscesses, it's it's a bother. Uh, but the reason that we worry about it is that if that same Staph aureus ever gets into the lung, it can cause an aggressive necrotizing pneumonia. That brings us on to the next section, which is how they are classified. And most uh, clinical people that are listening to this podcast will know about MSSA and MRSA. So uh, that is how we break them down normally. And uh, I think we probably need to talk for a little bit about how uh, penicillins work in order to make this distinction. Callum, what does uh, MSSA and MRSA stand for? Uh, so MSSA stands for methicillin sensitive Staphylococcus aureus, and MRSA stands for methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. All right, but we don't use methicillin commercially. It wasn't uh, acid stable. It wasn't suitable for use in humans. It had lots of side effects. So second, they developed oxacillin, and from that we created a lot of derivatives and what you use in your country tends to kind of vary with what got the license first. So in the UK, we use flucloxacillin. That's true in New Zealand as well. I used it in Australia. Uh, I know there are other parts of Australia that use dicloxacillin. Cloxacillin is used commonly in the US and Canada, I believe. The, there are very slight differences in side effects and dosing between these, but essentially their spectrum of action is, is completely similar. So, that's what you would use if you didn't have a patient that was allergic to it and you knew that you had an MSSA. What is the difference, Cal, between methicillin-sensitive and methicillin-resistant staph aureus? The reason that the flucloxacillin and the other anti-staphylococcal penicillins don't work is that where the penicillin groups, uh, what we call beta-lactam antibiotics, because they're the same sort of basic structure, uh, where they have their effect is something called a penicillin-binding protein. Again, another great name, where the penicillin binds. Uh, this is a protein which uh, makes up part of your cell wall, which James was talking about earlier on in the sort of gram-positive organisms, part of the bacteria. So what MRSA has done is it's changed uh, the shape of the penicillin-binding protein, and it, it has, instead of the normal penicillin-binding protein, it's got something called penicillin-binding protein 2A or just 2 and where normally your beta-lactam penicillin type antibiotic would bind, it's sort of buried inside the shape. So if you think of these sort of 3D models you get of proteins that sort of change the shape so you can't get to it anymore. The, this sort of change is encoded by a gene which is called MEC-A, is the most common one for MRSA. Um, there's another one called MEC-C, which you know, gives you slightly lower level resistance and is less common, certainly in Scotland. And these are encoded within a, something called the SCC, the staphylococcal chromosomal cassette. Um, so it comes with, you know, you don't just get your MEC-A, MEC-C gene, you get a couple other genes along with it. And so what you tend to see is that MRSA get um, strains of MRSA circulating, which depends on your local epidemiology. When we look in Scotland and generally in the UK, you, you really divide it up into hospital-acquired MRSA and community-acquired MRSA. So uh, hospital-acquired MRSA tends to have uh, lots of resistant genes encoded within its SEC, which leads to a multidrug-resistant profile, whereas community MRSA uh, it has a, a smaller staphylococcal chromosomal cassette or SEC, so it will contain MEC-A and maybe MEC-C, but it will not have a lot of other resistance uh, on it. Um, these uh, 
uh, have a cassette that's filmed with uh, more genes for virulence, so it will live on the skin and will cause more virulent skin and soft tissue infections. And that's because the population of people that it's trying to affect are kind of widely spread out. So when it makes contact with another potential host, it has to uh, it has to colonise that new person uh, much more effectively. Whereas if you think about hospital-acquired MRSA, it's got a big population of kind of immunocompromised people where there's lots of antibiotic use. It has to prioritise making proteins and enzymes which will mitigate the use of those antibiotics in those patients. So you're sort of selecting out your bacteria by the conditions that you're finding it in, in a way. Cam, do you want to talk through borsos? Because I must admit, I don't really understand them all that well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So everyone knows... Staphylococcus aureus, everyone's heard of MRSA, even if they don't understand what it stands for, just that it's bad news. Borsa is something that I think there's a lot of um, thought given to in microbiology, but isn't necessarily well recognized outside of that context. Um, It stands for borderline oxacillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, presumably because BIMRSA wouldn't um, be as, (laughs) as easy to say. It's quite hard to get right in the laboratory. Um, mm. So I won't go into too much detail about how we do the sensitivity testing, but you know, we, we use, when we're doing tests for Staph aureus, whether it's sensitive or not um, to certain things, um, you, you tend to look at something called uh, oxacillin and something else called cafoxetin, which is a cephalosporin, a type of beta-lactam uh, antibiotic. And uh, those two screen together, if they're both sensitive, you know, easy, it's MSSA. If they're both, you know, resistant and, and they're, they're, you know, strongly resistant, it's MRSA. Now, sometimes you get, you know, one, they don't agree, one sensitive, one's resistant, and particularly if it's slight resistance to one of them, um, you know, what what is the diagnosis? And BORSA refers to a very specific situation where you have this borderline resistance and there's various factors that you can test for in sort of reference laboratories which um, are defined as borsa mm. uh, often you send off these samples to the reference lab and actually it's you know it's just mssa um so you know it's probably not that important uh, you know generally speaking if you've got a confirmed borsa you're probably going to manage a severe infection as you would mrsa yeah and if people are wondering what's going on why is this phenotype you know appearing in the lab Usually it's because of point mutations in the penicillin binding protein, but not PBP2A, which would cause MRSA, or the, uh, the organism's hyperproducing beta-lactamases, and that has the potential to uh, overcome, uh, certainly oxacillin. The reason that we use oxacillin and cafoxetin is um, they're both trying to detect uh, MRSA. Cafoxetin is slightly better at detecting MEK-A resistance, and that's why we use it as well as oxacillin. But really, it's like you say, Cal, like uh, when I first heard about it, I thought that sounds like I should just use the treatment for MRSA. Um, and uh, not really a lot has changed over the past few yeah. years to make me change that point of view. You know, like if you if you don't 100% trust flu clocks, why the hell would you use it? Although I guess the flip side to that is flucoxacillin is, is the superior treatment has better outcomes. So, well, just so just you need so. to get it right. But um, that's a that's a you know problem for the laboratory, and we're not we're yeah. not talking about that in this episode too much. Um, and I guess the next thing to talk about. So we talked about sort of methicillin or you know the resistance uh, here. The one thing that is, was talked about a lot, um, and 
you know, is a concern is vancomycin resistance. So our sort of first line treatment for MRSA or for someone who's got a penicillin allergy and has a fear infection with Staphylococcus aureus is vancomycin. Most Staphylococcus aureus, you'll see vancomycin sensitive, um, but um, there are things called VISA or VRSA, so vancomycin intermediate or vancomycin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, for VISA, so the intermediate, um, there's a sort of change in the way that the bacteria is producing its cell wall, which means that vancomycin is not working. Vancomycin works on a similar but slightly different part of cell wall production from the penicillins. Um, if you get a high level of vancomycin resistance, it's acquired a gene called VAN-A, uh, which is usually carried by enterococci. And you see vancomycin resistant enterococci, which are sort of a subgroup of streptococci, um, they're in that same sort of ballpark, and we'll talk about them in the future, I'm sure. Um, mm. But you don't see this in clinical practice in the UK very often at all. Um, I certainly remember reading about it about 10 or so years ago, and um, you know it was a big concern, but I'm not sure that that's shown fruit. No, I agree. Um, usually the reason for not using as vancomycin is because you're running into some sort of trouble with um, dosing or... Uh, you know, you're not getting good levels. It's it's usually not because of resistance issue. Yeah. But that brings us on to our final section, and this is my favourite section, of course, which is how to kill them. Yeah, Jane, being a, a clinical pharmacologist, loves talking about <coughs> drugs. Uh, drugs and what being, to do. But me well, having the I microbiology mean, hat on, I took it for the laboratory. So hopefully, between us, that means that we can cover most things. Well, I mean, we're not going to go into too much. Um, uh, today into the you know the pharmacokinetics pharmacodynamics but let's let's start by saying so if it is MSSA if you have the option you should use fluplox nothing kills staph aureus like fluploxacillin if it is sensitive another related group of beta-lactam antibiotics called the cephalosporins the same is true of the lower generation cephalosporins so you uh, cephazolin there's a first-generation cephalosporin that is used in other countries to treat cellulitis. We used it a lot in New Zealand. Uh, it can only be given IV, and it has a very similar spectrum of action. It covers staph, it covers strep, so it's perfect for cellulitis. Um, that sensitivity extends up to the third-generation cephalosporins as well. So ceftriaxone is uh, used, particularly if you require CNS penetration uh, for whatever reason. Um, when it comes to MRSA, though, I mean, almost you know, by definition, the anti-staphylococcal penicillins don't work. Um, but there is a four and a half slash fifth generation cephalosporin uh, called keftaraline, which does have some activity against MRSA. The I got to say, this isn't very commonly used, certainly in Scotland, and I've in fact never used it. But I've sort of memorised this information on the idea that one time it might be uh, useful. Callum, have you used it, keftaraline? No. So not really use cephalosporins that much. I think no. practice is very much based on what happens locally. So some sort of anti-staphylococcal penicillin or some sort of first line uh, cephalosporin, you know, is going to be most people's first line go-to. And the, the evidence is there for these to be the, you know, if you compare uh, anti-staphylococcal penicillin with a glycopeptide, which includes vancomycin, you know, the flucloxacillin type antibiotics are superior. And I don't think there's a yeah. few things that you can say with a degree of certainty and infection and evidence, but that is one yeah. of them. 
But one thing is certainly that staff race is killed by Fruitlock's better than anything else you care to mention. Like people always, you know, think, oh, I, you know, this has failed. I should go and use uh, carbapenem because it is the strongest antibiotic. It doesn't really work like that. Yeah. If Fluclox isn't killing it and it's an MSSA, uh, the carbapenem isn't going to be any better. And in fact, when uh, the uh, staph aureus acquires uh, MECA and becomes an MRSA, carbapenems are out as well, which brings us to the next group, which is glycopeptides. So that's your vancomycin, tycoplane, and they work on the cell wall but through a uh, related mechanism, just like Calma said before. They have gone against uh, penicillins and cephalosporins in head-to-heads, and they are inferior. But for MRSA, they're first line. And in fact, the is it BSAC, have, uh, the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy have just brought out an MRSA guideline uh, earlier this year, and they're still recommending glycopeptides in most cases as the first line uh, treatment of choice uh, because it's kind of use is widespread, certainly for vancomycin uh, throughout the UK. People know how to do it um, and it's cheap. Okay, so let's say you can't use fluclocsacillin and you can't use vancomycin. What else could you use? There's plenty of other stuff. There's stuff that um, uh, which works at uh, the level of protein synthesis, the ribosomes, that would be things like gentamicin, clarithromycin, doxycycline, stuff that works on DNA synthesis, so your quinolones like ciprofloxacin and coltramoxazole. You've got weird and wonderful stuff like linezolid and daptomycin, which you would usually only use if you were recommended it by a microbiologist. But really how you're going to treat staph aureus infection really relies quite a lot on the site, uh, what you're trying to treat. So if you've got an issue with toxin production, like toxic shock or food poisoning, you want to think about using an antimicrobial which has an effect on protein synthesis. So the, the commonly used one is clindamycin. Sometimes a microbiologist will recommend linezolid. If you had a skin and soft tissue infection, you might think about something like uh, doxycycline or if it was a serious and you couldn't use vancomycin or fluclox, you might be recommended daptomycin, something like that. If somebody is uh, not wanting to stay in hospital uh, following a bacteremia, say, you would want to use drugs which have a high bioavailability and that you would you would trust. So that would be something like doxycycline or cotramoxazole or a quinolone. But really the determination of what you're going to use depends on the kind of infection that you're trying to treat and the mechanics of the antibiotic that you're wanting to use. And also um, whether the bug's sensitive in the first place. Yeah, and the sensitivity profile. So we're, we're talking up here in Scotland where we don't, we've got our problems with resistance, but we're not terrible. Just the population is not big enough really to sustain uh, an MDR population. So we can still use quinolones for uh, staph aureus. Where there, there are other parts of the country in the UK where that's just not the case. And there are other parts of the world where you would never... Um, use quinolones and so we're kind of lucky in that regard yeah okay so we've talked through uh, a list of things there we've talked about what staphylococcus aureus is uh, what staphylococcus aureus does how, how a little bit about the classification and what antibiotics we might use so I guess drawing that together we can say that this is an organism which is a gram-positive coccus in clusters it is an organism that is found quite commonly on people's skin or in their nose or in their 
uh, GI tract. But when it causes infections, it can cause severe infections because it has different virulence factors, um, which allow it to be a, a, you know, a successful pathogen. And when we come to treating it, you know, we want to try and use the first line antibiotics, the flucoxetelin types or the, you know, the first generation cephalosporins. Uh, we know those are the best. And if we can't use those, you're in a bit of trouble. So things like vancomycin, speaking to infection specialists about more unusual things. And then the key really is if you've got a complicated Staphylococcus infection, like a bacteremia or similar, is to get the source controlled. And that's sort of an introduction to this bug. Hopefully we could talk about Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia as a more um, specific topic uh, in the future, because there's a lot to say. And I think we spend a lot of our uh, working life combating this bacteria in patients because it's really can be quite problematic. Yeah. Although at the same time, you know, if you think about it, most staph aureus infections are dealt with in primary care or in the emergency departments. And we never hear about any of them, you know, like most cellulitis are handled by the GP mm. and, you know, usually with Fluclox 500, which I would never prescribe in an inpatient. And yet, it works, you know, almost 90% of the time. Uh, and if that doesn't work, they'll try some uh, amacrolide or they'll try some doxycycline and that will shift it. We get hung up on these kind of minutiae of uh, treatment, but uh, quite a lot of the time, a little bit of penicillin is all you need. Uh, Flucloxacillin, not penicillin, penicillin. Yes, so... And the spectrum of disease that this bacteria causes is pretty vast. Most of the time, we probably don't ever know that that's the bug because you don't get the samples but when you do get a severe staph aureus infection it's really bad news any closing remarks or thoughts nope see you next week all right questions comments suggestions why don't you send them all to idiots podcasting at gmail.com that's idiots podcasting at gmail.com thanks for listening we've been callum and jane see you next time